Welcome to The Cutaway. My name is William Mullally, film critic based in Dubai. Um, you are in for what I what I hope, at least, is the most difficult episode I'll have to record. Usually we're talking about, you know, superhero movies or, you know, regional films. Um, but there's a film that's come out recently, first on HBO in the U.S., then a short theatrical run in Dubai. Now it's on Netflix across the region called Leaving Neverland. It's about two victims, um, James Safechuck and Wade Robson, who are making allegations against Michael Jackson, the most famous singer of all time. And although this is a subject that's been tread a lot in, you know, in the media, in you know, in trials um, that Michael Jackson himself went through in the early 2000s, as well as um, a settled case in the, in the 1990s. It's been in the, the, the court of public opinion for 25 years. It's still a conversation that people shy away from. And even with this documentary out and the, the huge views that it's getting in the region, I'm sure, it's still something that people, even after they watch it, um, they go up to their friends and they say, what do you think? It's something that we really struggle with. And a few weeks ago in Dubai, we did a, a panel. Um, it was four of us. I was the moderator. And we discussed the film after after a, a private screening at Cinema Akil, the independent cinema in Dubai. And there was a lot of pushback against the documentary against the you know the victims themselves against you know parents who you know would ever bring their children around Michael Jackson in every different direction it was just there were a few voices in the room that were defending the victims and talking about the the possible veracity of this documentary you know people just in my opinion just didn't want to believe it um, and went into it and not wanting to believe it, came out of it, still not wanting to believe it. And I'm sure you, you've, you've seen in, in your own lives people who, either Michael Jackson fans or just, you know, people who just don't want to accept that this could be true. And I think, well, I, I wanted to let you guys hear a couple of my own thoughts from the, the panel itself. I'm not going to include too much from the other panelists, not because I, I want to shut out their voices, but just because... You know, <laughs> I'm not sure if they'd want to be, you know, overly included in this podcast. Um, but here, here's a few of the things that I had to say. Um, my introduction, then I'll move point by point. You're going to hear some breaks, and you'll hear me move from different things that I said throughout the panel. I mean, he he defended himself for decades. Yeah. And he was always ha he always had that platform. And so, okay, so I'm going to give my usually as moderator, I'm not here to have a, a viewpoint. I'm going to have viewpoints. Just, um, but okay, so he he did defend himself. He did put out his case. And I do want to say that, especially this platform that we have right now, this is not a court. This is not a criminal proceeding. This is not. It's not really. We, we don't have to have the burden of um, of reasonable doubt and innocent until proven guilty. We're just people making up our mind and discussing this issue. So 
I think that we can kind of grapple with it and just what do you feel, what do you think, how do you, like, how do you respond to these sorts of things. And so for me, the narrative works a little bit like this. Um, and I'm coming at this, I remember recording black and white on, off a cassette using a little microphone in front of the, the microphone when I was you know, four years old in 91. I, I remember you know, key moments in my life when Michael was really, really you know, important to me. And so I'm grappling with this as a fan, as someone who did this, who also is going through a cycle where I think that because Michael is such a, a key person in our lives, in our landscape, it, it hurts a little bit more and we don't view it through the same lens as we do other sorts of accusations. And especially, I think, since the Harvey Weinstein case and since the number of cases that came out after that, we had, had heard these rumors for years, um, you know, be the, the names that have been that have gone down in that cycle. And a lot of times we went through the, you know, attacking whatever an accuser is saying, picking apart their story, going after, you know, oh, well, th this is inconsistent with this. Well, they said that they didn't do it before, and now they're doing it. We kind of learned that all of those people were telling the truth, and all of these people that were saying, you know, I'm a victim of this, are actually the people with the power who were silencing everyone underneath them. And I don't understand why that should be any different from Michael Jackson, but just because it hurts more. And... So I, I, I'm never going to come from a place where I'm going to be listening to people describing what happened to them in graphic detail, clearly pouring their hearts out, and I'm going to sit there and say, okay, you're lying because you, you need money, because I don't think that a victim necessarily has to be the burden on them to be this pure soul who has you know, never done anything bad in their life and never had an ill intention in their life and doesn't have any spite towards this person who doesn't have to exist in a capitalist society in order to further themselves and you know, exist in a life that doesn't mean that bad things didn't happen to them if they are a normal person. Like why, why, why can Michael Jackson be this confusing person who slept in beds with children for thousands of days and we're allowed him to be weird, but if someone else, you know, maybe they were victimized and also wanted money, they don't have any, oh, then, okay, they're obviously lying. Well, why, why can we disregard this and not this? And so I think that we're misunderstanding the power structure and understanding how much power Michael had over all of us in our hearts and also just over the media landscape by being the most powerful media person in the entire world. So, okay, that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from this. I think I, I want to say something about the, the whole innocence thing because that's very much his construction of his own character. That was how he put himself out there. That was how he defended himself in interviews regarding this. Um, that was, you know, he even said in an interview that it was his song Childhood, that was the, his most autobiographical song, and the song that he used as a, a literal response to the accusations against him, which pitched himself as, oh, I'm an innocent, I, I just want to be around children, I see purity. It, he infantilized himself, which is also, I guess, because of racist, racist dynamics, an easy thing for, for society to do with him, is... Because of that, we don't give him any agency in this sort of situation. We make excuses for him. Whereas at the same time, he w you watch anything else that he did. You watch, I was just watching This Is It on Netflix. And that dude knew everything that he was doing. He was completely with I'm having trouble um, hearing any of that and not categorizing it as vict victim blaming. Because yeah, we're talking about like, how, how parents are complicit in getting in this sort of situation. How they, why they might turn a blind eye in a selfish way because they do want to get rich and famous and they're able to be blinded by the stardom of it. It's still very possible within that context to... to we, that's, I mean, that's kind of a separate conversation to whether or not someone who's the rich and famous and beloved can operate through a system of trust and building a public persona in which he can also act as a predator. Um, there's, there's never evidence in, in abuse cases like of this. There's rarely, rarely evidence in this sort of abuse cases, especially because of the emotional struggle. People usually don't come out until it's too late. 
Yes. So the fact that these cases were thrown out, yeah, it's because they couldn't deal with it until they were adults. So it, it was a, a difficult conversation. It wasn't just, you know, the panelists who disagreed with me. It was, uh, you know, hecklers in the audience who kept pushing back um, against really everything. And one thing I realized in doing this panel, in talking about this serious of a subject. This isn't a normal movie. It, it's it's something more. It, it requires more than just you know the critical thought of an average person. It requires some expertise to really try to parse and understand. And all uh, and I, I think cultural literacy now requires us to to learn more about these sorts of subjects. And just being human requires us to understand this sort of subject matter to prevent this sort of thing from ever happening again. And I don't think it's so much about getting into the mind of a terrible person, but it's about identifying who those terrible people even are. So this won't be a two-sides debate in this episode. Um, <laughs> I think ultimately, if you if you believe what these guys say, which is, you know, whenever anyone asks me, like, do you, what do you think about this documentary? I say, I believe them. But if you do believe them, it's it's almost un, impossible to sit there and say, okay, let's hear from the other side of this debate. Let's call into question everything they've said and you know the, their lives that they've put up um, for us to eviscerate. It's, it, I think that's just too much for me. I mean, you might agree with, disagree with me on that. You might agree with me on that. But that's just how we're going to go about this. Uh, maybe in a later episode we can go back and have a debate. But I wanted to get an expert in. Um, so I called up James Clemente. He's a, a former FBI profiler. He specializes in children victimology. He's also been a leading voice as an advisor in Hollywood, including working on a producer and writer on Criminal Minds, the hit TV series. And he actually reached out because um, I was getting a lot of hate on Twitter. The, the cinema itself was getting a lot of hate from fans uh, of Michael Jackson and you know people who are against the documentary. And he said, you know, keep doing what you're doing. This is actually a really accurate representation of this sort of grooming and this sort of predatory behavior. And with that in mind, you know, knowing that he's out there wanting to give a positive voice to victims and giving a safe space for them to, to talk about what's happened to them, I got in contact with him and he agreed to, to speak with me for a little bit and he's an incredibly busy guy as you'll hear um, he works morning to to the wee hours of the next morning um, he took some some time out and it's a bit of an unstructured conversation there's a lot of us talking about the panel itself and but I think his point of view is really really valuable here and I don't know if you can even if you watch the documentary even if you haven't and I, I don't think it's a documentary I can recommend to everyone just because their descriptions of what happened to them is so explicit that I think that if you're at all sensitive to to that sort of material, it might be too much for you to listen to. But I do think that this conversation between Jim and I is one that is valuable and will hopefully um, add some really needed point of view to the way that you process this and the way that you go about this in the future, even if it's not Michael Jackson, even if it's in your own lives. Um, I, I do think that what he says here needs to be heard and needs to be considered and not just rejected out of hand 
and I really hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Um, I'm sorry if it... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say I'm sorry if it offends you, but you know, I'm sorry if this is a lot to hear. Um, I'll try to get back to more fun subjects in, in our next episodes. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Jim Clemente over the phone, former FBI profiler and really insightful person who's had to deal with so much in his own life. So here we go. All right, there we go. Should be fine. You can hear me? Yes. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so, um, yeah, thank you for taking the time at all. Um, I know, obviously, you know, you're incredibly busy. Um, but there's so much that I wanted to talk about this. And obviously, we just did this big, um, you know, roundtable discussion in Dubai. And it was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do professionally. I don't know. And it was about it was about leaving Neverland. About leaving Neverland, yeah. And I just felt in the room that usually as a moderator, I don't give my opinion, but I was just getting so much pushback, not only from you know the audience, you know hecklers in the audience, but also the other panelists were just very negative and pushing this back. So I feel like it just we need an expert voice in this sort of conversation. I feel like there's so much left to be said, and especially it's now on Netflix here, so it's going to be much more widely seen. Um, and I just really wanted to get your input on that. So, All right. Well, um, so what was the pushback? Oh, it was all kinds of pushback. So, I mean, I, I started off basically talking about just the how victims in, in particular are always demanded to be pure that, you know, any sort of like their intentions have to be pure. They have to be perfectly good people. And as well, every single part of their story needs to hold up under intense scrutiny when it doesn't make any sense. If you look at um, the way that victims recall memories or the way anyone recalls memories, um, there was all kinds of things. I, I tried to, <laughs> there was one point where I started making the argument. I'm like, okay, if we just go by what Michael admits to, how many people in the history of the world have been able to find young boys, identify them, go after them, become friends with them, um, you know, call them every day, send them you know, love letters over fax, call them to his house, bring their parents with them, deliberately separate them from his parents, bring them into their bedroom, sleep with them a night after night after night, and then dispose of them and do the exact same thing with another boy and have that be completely above board and okay. And one of the pushbacks I got was, well... In some families in the Philippines, people have to share bed space with, you know, someone else's child because they don't have the money. Like, it was just, there was this incredible cognitive dissonance that nothing that I could say would well, ever clearly, Yeah, but clearly, clearly, that's somebody who's distorting the truth because that is not the case with Michael Jackson. There was no reason for that to happen. In fact, he had dozens of other bedrooms for kids to sleep in. He did it by choice. It's not at all about need or necessity. He did it by choice. Also, the fact is, he's an adult male. From 30 to 50 years of age, this man was sleeping with little boys. He was putting little boys in his bed. He is a human being. And by nature, that's a sexual being. It's how he was created. It's how he created his kids, supposedly. How are you going to say that an adult male, 30 to 50 years old, who has no real sexual, age-appropriate sexual partners, 
how are you going to say that he is not sexually interested in children? He, sur- he surrounds himself with children. He, he makes his entire world at children. He has contests to get six- and seven-year-olds to play him, not 20- and 25-year-olds who would have been doing an amazing job playing him, you know, mimicking him and doing his dancing. But no, he wanted the little children to do it. That gave him access. That was actually part of his grooming process. Yeah. And the results of that grooming process are astronomical, and they have ripple effects down the road. I mean, these people who, who don't understand what happens when a child, first of all, is in the presence of Michael Jackson. They themselves, all these detractors, all these people who are sticking up for Michael Jackson now and, and downing his victims, they're all victims of his grooming. It worked on them. It works on them today, despite the fact that they know that this man who for decades did not have age-appropriate partners, for decades tried to pose as, as a husband to Lisa Marie Presley, as a father to his kids, that, that, that these people believe that, that his pillar of the community, you know, nice guy, wonderful person, persona was it. The fact is, none of those things negate the fact that he was sexually attracted to children. He, he said he loves children, but he slept invariably with boys. Why is that? Why is it if he loves children, he only slept with boys? What is it that made the boys special, that he could hold them and be close to them and nurture them, but he didn't do the same thing with little girls? Why is that? They were all around him too, right? They were in his videos. They were in his concerts. Why didn't he take little girls home to sleep with them? Is it because it's inappropriate? Is it because that would be a bad image for an adult man to be in bed with a a little girl? Well, it's just as inappropriate for him to be in bed with a little boy. I mean, there's so many things. More so because he's sexually attracted to boys. Yeah. I mean, I I think that being personally, I grew up a fan of Michael Jackson. You know, he's incredibly important to me as an artist. And there's so many different ways that, you know, yeah, and, and I justified it to myself. Um, and I bought into the ways that he groomed us and I rewatching his interviews after I watched this film and even rewatching, this is it, the documentary one, you get an idea of how smart he is. And two, I just realized for the first time how conscious this idea that he's an innocent, that he just believes in the purity and this childlike character that he would play, how consciously he, you know, set that into our minds and reinforced it and crafted it very, very carefully when he's this incredibly brilliant guy who would, and all of a sudden would play it off like he was, you know, dumbfounded by every situation. And very manipulative. It was in it's insane. And there's even like, it almost goes into self parody at certain points. I was watching one interview from the early 2000s where they're saying, okay, do you know other boys, other men that sleep in, have young boys sleep in their beds? He's like, of course, not for sex. That would be wrong. And that's the exact way he phrases it. And it's just, it blew my mind going back to that. Right. Well, I mean, he was, he was a genius at manipulating and he did it very effectively. But I mean, can you imagine, you know, the average offender who grooms children and their parents and guardians and the, the community doesn't have world power. Like, he is one, one uh, of a kind. Nobody else had 
that kind of celebrity. And he used that celebrity very effectively. It was very, very much a power play for him. And to be able to, to be able to just, you know, call on kids anywhere in the world that he wanted to. I mean, he was, he was unique in that way. But the way that he, the way that uh, James Safechuck and Wade Robson talked about how he would call them back up after not talking to them, you know, cutting them off after saying, "You're, I love you, you're in my life every day, we're the best friends, we're everything, we're family, just cutting them off, dropping them when the next boy came into town, when the next boy, you know, traveled with him, Tell, lying to them about not being able to go on tour with him and things like that. And then when he got in trouble, he immediately calls him back. That, that just really speaks volumes about the manipulation and the fact that he threatened them with, with perjury. Well, you, you perjured yourself last time, so now you have to do it. Well, that's admitting. That's a direct admission that he knows what he was doing was committing a crime. And he forced them, he encouraged them, cajoled them, forced them, whatever, to lie under oath for him. And that's the crime. Mm -hmm. So that, that was just really insidious. That really shows the level of, of understanding and knowledge on his part of what he was doing to these kids. So I want to talk about um, the victims themselves, because one of the other big pushbacks that I was getting is, uh, even though I started, you know, with these thoughts about, you know, purity is a ridiculous concept, but there were people bringing up the fact that he was dating Michael Jackson's niece for a while, and Michael Jackson had introduced them, and he cheated on her later in life with Britney Spears, allegedly. Um, people were pushing back at, you know, the fact that they changed their stories. And the, the, one of the panelists actually opened it up with saying, oh, we know that we've known these guys are liars for years and picking apart every part of their story. So what makes their this so compelling for them? Yeah. Okay, so that's interesting. They will brand them as liars, and quote, for years, right? Mm -hmm. Yet, they believe the actual lie that they told. In other words, the lie was that nothing happened with Michael Jackson. So yes, they did lie for Michael Jackson. They were liars, but, mm, mm. but they don't disbelieve everything they say. They just disbelieve the things they say that are negative to Michael Jackson. So they're trying to say, well, they're t he was telling the truth when he said nothing happened. Now he's lying. When in fact, it's the exact opposite. If somebody is a liar, why are you, why are you putting credence on what he said before? He's a liar, right? So why did you believe him when he said Michael Jackson did nothing? It's just a way to prove their point, period. They're manipulating the circumstances. The fact is, most victims will lie and deny that it happened, especially when you have a male offender and a male victim. I mean, there's so many reasons why male offenders don't want to talk. They're labeled as, as homosexual. They're labeled as potential offenders in the future. They're, they're not men, real men, because they got victimized. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why they don't want to do it. Plus, they got groomed. They, they knew they did things that were wrong, and that's how he controlled them. He knew. Mm -hmm. They know that they, they lied to their parents. They know that they covered things up. They know that Michael Jackson rehearsed them over and over again on what to say if somebody caught them and what to say if somebody asked them. It was just time after time after time that they knew they were doing something wrong and that's a way to control people. Once you get a child to do something they know is wrong, they're not going to run and tell, Mommy, Daddy, I did this bad thing, and then this other bad thing happened. And the other thing about children is they don't understand the severity 
of it. Getting in trouble for a little tiny thing like not going to school or saying a bad word or doing something like that, getting in trouble for those things, they think is getting in trouble. And they don't understand that the crime that's being committed against them is very severe. They don't understand the, the relative degree of severity of those two things. And so when, you, when I look at the behavior that was exhibited by Michael Jackson with these people, when I, it started when he, when he was at the, the um, Grammy Awards one year, and he bought a little kid up with him on stage. I think he was holding him. And, and I, was, I started to get worried about that. I was like, wait a minute, what the hell's happening here? I was an expert in child sex crimes. I was a victim of a child sex crime. I understand what's going on. I understand those dynamics. And when the Bashir documentary came out, and, and you could see Gavin Arvizo, you know, so lovingly leaning against him, holding his hand, like, this is a kid who's like 15 years old. And that is a time when they typically separate from adults that way. They, they typically want to stand on all two feet and, and show their manhood. But instead, he was cuddling up to it. It was a very intimate moment, and that's when I absolutely knew. That's when I absolutely knew that, that Michael Jackson had an inappropriate relationship with that kid. But later, I would talk to him, Gavin Arvizo. Later, I would hear from um, Jordy Chandler and the, the similarities in the, in the grooming process and, and everything they said and did traveling with them, the Jesus juice, all that kind of stuff. It was all corroborative. And when you see leaving Neverland and see the details that they give you about what was going on, it's, un, it's unprecedented in terms of the way that they are cross-corroborating each other and cross-corroborating their own allegations. The, the affective detail, the the spatial details, the emotional details, those are things that we have seen in studies that indicate veracity, not deception. So there, there's so many reasons why, you know, what, what they said actually corroborates each other and corroborates themselves. They're internally corroborative, but they're also consistent with what we found in the searches. And, you know, the, the, you know, the child erotica that he has around the house, the, the, the lures that he had to lure in children. I mean, Neverland was actually just one big grooming tool for Michael Jackson. And, and so were his contests and his concerts and his, his um, tours. He, he used them as grooming tools. And he also very effectively would go into a family and just claim, you know, look, I have no friends, you know, look, I'm, I'm alone. I don't want to be lonely. And he'd tell these kids that, you know, oh, I'll be lonely. And if they ever find out, we'll be in jail. You know, he threatens them, uh, you know, just very underhandedly. It's really despicable. Anyway, I probably got off topic there, but. No, no, not at all. I mean, I'm just curious. I mean, in all your years, have you ever you know, spoken to people who were making up these sorts of allegations? And, yeah, and... well, so that false allegations of child abuse do happen. But here's where they happen. First of all, generally, it's little girls five and under, all right? Mm -hmm. It's in the middle of a custody dispute. Yes, it happens. Yes, some people have, you know, used it in the past to try to get, you know, something or, or extort somebody or take advantage of somebody or to, to play the victim. But at the same time, the, the least likely to do that are adolescent males and older who identify as 
heterosexual who've been sexually victimized by another male. Those are the least likely people to make up that they engage in sexual activity with an adult male. That is an extremely rare occurrence, and typically what happens is the actual opposite, is they actual victims will deny it in the face of photographic evidence, in the face of, of documented evidence that they were victimized, in the face of confessions by the offender. Adolescent males and, and young adult males will typically deny up and down that they were victimized by a man because of all those things I said. They don't want to be labeled as damaged goods. They don't want to be labeled as, as less than a man. They don't want to be labeled as a potential offender in the future because there's that myth that if you're victimized, you're going to be an offender. And they don't want to be labeled as gay. So for all those reasons, they typically deny it when it actually happens rather than the inverse. Yeah, I, I think the most disgusting thing is that in a way, Michael wasn't lying when he said to these kids, you know, in grooming them, that they were that they were both going to get hurt by this, you know? Um, obviously, Michael's threatening this sort of like the police are going to come get you and you're going to get arrested for breaking a bad thing. And he's implanting that in a child's mind. But it is, you know, sickeningly true that there's so many negative consequences that come once someone has foisted this fate upon you that you then have to Absolutely. grapple with the, the ramifications of that in so many awful ways. Right, and you're seeing the results of that. People are attacking you because you're trying to tell the truth. And here's the thing. He was also not lying when he said he was in love with them. Mm-hmm. He was in love with them. He literally, if they didn't age, he would couple for life with them. But because they age, he can't couple, he can't couple for life with them. So he always has to have a grooming pipeline. He always has to have kids that are ready that will fill that void when one ages out. And he did continue activity, you know, well into their teenage years and so forth. So he wasn't a pedophile, per se. He did, he, 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 he was a pedophile and he was a preferential child sex offender. Pedophiles are only attracted to prepubescent kids, but he, his attraction went on later in life. But the fact is that he, he, he was more interested in prepubescent kids than he was in adolescent kids. They're easier easier to manipulate. They're easier to keep quiet. They're easier to groom into a long-term pattern of abusive behavior. So there's so many reasons why he continued to do that. And the fact is, if he was not that wealthy, if he did not have Neverland, if he did not have the seclusion that he was able to engineer in that house, in that land, in that property, in those other outbuildings, then he wouldn't have been able to get away with it that long. But... He had all those things and a hell of a legal team to try to force people into silence and, you know, bribe them into silence. You know, I I think that you're probably optimistic in terms of, you know, this being a sea change moment in, you know, not just this case, uh, but, you know, future cases and people being able to come out. Um, But from my perspective, just, you know, as, as as a guy and watching this film, talking to other people, I was questioned so many different times by every single person I talked to who's seen the documentary, and nobody would just straight up believe it. And I've also seen so many interviews with you know people that knew you know Wade or James, and they refused to straight up believe it. And when I just say, "Oh, why do you believe them?" Because I believe what they're saying. As I just, I take it to be true, and it, everything fits you know fits with the, the how these things have, you know happen. And I, I said at the end of the panel um, that for everything that they were saying, because they were pushing back, but they, there was this. 
one person was really pushing back in a way that they were saying that this was hurting the the landscape for people being able to come out about allegations, with, uh, which I disagreed with. But I said, did, what, if there were a victim of sexual abuse sitting in the audience, or if there were a victim of Michael Jackson sitting in the audience, would they feel after listening to this sort of conversation that this was a safer environment for them to come out? And I didn't feel so. I felt like it actually had been a net negative in that way, just to have this sort of conversation. Well, and I'm not sure if, I, if that's true. Well, that's, that's very unfortunate, but it is a conversation. It's better than sweeping it under the under the yeah. rug. So, in a way, that isn't that positive, even if even if it's a negative uh, back and forth. But I will ask you this, and what you should ask them is: Tell me why there was never, ever an allegation against Elton John. Why ever, ever an allegation of David Bowie? Why was there never, ever an allegation against Prince? They yeah, yeah. were iconic. They all had sexual identity or image issues, right? But none of them, not a single one of them, was there ever a public allegation or a private allegation that I'm aware of that they were, one, sleeping with boys or sexually victimizing boys or girls. Why is that? They were world-renowned. They were, during, during the same time period, why was it only Michael Jackson that attracted these people that, quote, wanted just wanted to get money out of him it, it's just not true michael jackson is yeah. the only one that had allegations made against him because he was the only one who set up this entire grooming system so he could get kids in and he could recycle them when he wanted to and he could have privacy with them and he could convince them and their parents to let him sleep with them and then he could in some cases slowly groom them into sexual behavior and some place and some cases very quickly groom them into sexual behavior with them. Michael Jackson did this to himself. It wasn't at all that people were targeting him because all the other people, all the other icons of this time and before and since would have been susceptible to the same thing. But it's just not things that people make up stories about in general. Now, there have been some cases in which the allegations couldn't have been proved. There have been cases where it, it appeared that somebody who was, you know, let's say a, you know, a child prostitute who, who, you know, claimed that, you know, a celebrity or somebody important, some po political person was involved in sexually victimizing them. There have been those cases that haven't been proved in, in history, in the history of law enforcement. So I'd be remiss in saying that it, that it never happens. But in cases like this, it's, it's unheard of. In cases like this, where you have somebody who's a public figure who admits to literally bringing boys, unrelated boys, young children, teenage boys, into bed with them, sleeping with them, in his underwear, in their underwear, and, and the allegations are that, you know, he would come out of the shower and drop his towel, you know, with an erection. He, he would do things like that to to customize them to this kind of behavior. He would show them pornography. He would talk to them about sex and pornography. All those things are grooming tactics. These guys, Wade Robson, James Safechuck, gave us a textbook example of how grooming is done. It's done by a master. I mean, you know, we're talking about the level of grooming mastery that surpasses Sandusky, surpasses Nasser. Michael Jackson did it so much better because Michael Jackson had that 
amazing public image, and he was able to take advantage of that. Yeah, and the system is always built for for these sorts of of you know predators to get away with their things. I mean, some of the pushback was always, oh, well, let's ha have more evidence in a situation when there is no evidence. And when you have legal cases where, for some reason, someone saying, well, he never did this to me, is somehow at all relevant. <laughs> um, it's just it's it's a, it's it's. I mean, I have to laugh, but to cry just because it's so absurd. Just the level. I have no idea why they let that kind of testimony in in the trial. Yeah. It's completely it's, irrelevant. That's like saying in a murder trial, just bringing in a hundred people. Um, I know that guy, and he didn't kill me. I mean, it's just ridiculous. They should never have allowed that. It doesn't have anything to do with the case, and it 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 created a situation where real victims lied so that they wouldn't be branded as a victim. So, I mean, it's just that's just absurd. Makes no, no sense legally. And I, mean, I don't even understand how other people, like I actually, I know people in real life who knew Michael Jackson when they were kids and they vehemently defend him because it never happened to them. And I, I don't understand how you can put that through your own mind and, and have that make sense back on the other side, let alone a, you know, a court of law. Yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, it's just absurd. I, yeah, I know, I know, I know people who he spent a lot of time with who, he was around their kids. He was, you know, hanging out at their home, all that kind of stuff. And I don't know if their kids were victimized or not, but they totally believe that they weren't. But the fact is they could have been a small percentage of victims ever disclosed. Most victims wait 20 years. The majority wait with 20 years and 25% wait 30 years or more to disclose. So, you know, we won't know what happened to a lot of these other kids and in a lot of these other families, but, the fact is that he repeatedly would would latch on to one boy at a time, generally, and he would be the special one. And then when he got tired of him, he would move on to somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. And that's a pattern that played out in the public, and that's a pattern that everybody should recognize as, as a major red flag. When an adult wants to spend more time with a child than with adults, when an adult wants to spend more time with your child than you can stand spending with your child, that's a major red flag. And why alone time? Why is that necessary at all? Parents should protect their kids from that kind of, that kind of risky situation at all costs. It shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen. And parents need to talk to their kids about sex and sexual victimization because otherwise they'll be blindsided. And, but it's not just talking to the kids. You have to encourage your kids to actually talk back to you. You have to encourage your kids to be able to use the words, all the sexual words, every possible dirty word. They have to be able to talk to their parents about it. Otherwise, they have no language with which to communicate back to you that something's going on. Mm -hmm. So those are really important things. Can you imagine if, if we protect our ch children from the busy street we live on by not telling them about it? No, we don't do that. We bring them out to the street. We say, look, these cars are going by real fast. You could get hurt. You can get killed. You can't play out here. In fact, you bring them to the corner. You say, look, you wait for that sign to change. You push the button, and then you hold your hand, and you look both ways, and you walk back and forth with them until they can do it safely on their own. But we don't do that with sex and sexual victimization, and that's a major problem. Mm. It sets our kids up for victimization because the most common offender someone they know, love, and trust, someone 
that's close to you or your family or in your family or in a position of authority that you hand your kids over to. And that is the biggest risk to any child. Child abduction by stranger is a very, very minute percentage compared to the hundreds of thousands, in fact, millions of kids around the world who get victimized every year. Huh. And there, there was so much, like, speaking of, of parents, there was so much parent blaming as well in the conversation. And, you know, and I understand it on the part of the boys. They, yeah. because they you know, they have, you know, issues they have to deal with. But here's the thing. It's the same thing that happened with Nasser, the same thing that happened with Sandusky. People pointed the finger at people around them and said, you should have known. Well, the fact is they were incredibly effective groomers. Nasser was 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 accused a number of times credibly and they did investigations and they had colleagues. They made rules that he wasn't allowed to be alone in the room with these with his patients. They still he still molested people with with their parents in the room. This is how audacious their behavior is. And with Michael, he played this childish thing and, and you know, this you know, persona with them, but actually was very manipulative. I mean, you could tell with what Wade and, and Safechuck said just how manipulative he was with them and with the parents. But anyway, and Sid Dusky, they're pointing the finger at, at Penn State and at, at Joe Paterno when the fact is these people believed that a nice guy cannot be a child sex offender, and that's absolutely untrue. They know it now. The world should know it now. You can be a nice person and still be sexually attracted to children. And that's the most important lesson we should get from this. Nice guy, acquaintance offenders, part of the community offenders are very, very extremely common. Probably the most common offender. Because it's only the people that don't have those skills who have to resort to snatching and grabbing a kid for sex. So when you deal with somebody who's a groomer, you're talking about somebody who's more educated, more intelligent, more manipulative, more able to, to use the system and use their position. So they're really insidious offenders. Yeah. yeah I, I think that in the Middle East, it's just it's very hard for that conversation to happen. It was even hard to have this event. We ended up having to make it private in the end and stop selling tickets because there was so much pushback. Um, but I, I really hope that these conversations... Yeah. I'm sorry yeah, to hear yeah, that. Yeah, I, you know, well, but I'm glad you're doing this podcast to get it out there and put it out there and let people who need to hear it, hear it. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I mean, do you feel like there's specific... There's more to tell with the Michael story? Do you think there's more people going to come forward? Do you feel like, you know, this is this where I, it ends? I, or is, I, there, is there more to come? Yeah. I know more people have come forward. And I know there is more corroborating evidence out there. And I'm hoping that we can bring that to the public in a short period of time. Yeah, I really hope so. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jim. It was great speaking to you. All right, thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate what you're doing. And I'm sorry that you went through all that. But just know that that's not unusual. And you you know the truth, and you should continue to speak the truth. Eventually, people will come around. I think a huge number of people did come around, people yeah. who were ambivalent about Michael Jackson because of, you know, leaving Neverland and the Oprah special after that. And I am certain there will be more. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like for my – if I have a platform and I'm not using it for something valuable, then there's there's no reason to do anything, you know, so – 
it's I feel like it's a responsibility too, and I, I hope other people feel the same responsibility to kind of tackle their own preconceived notions and the walls they've built up to stop themselves from dealing with this sort of stuff. Thank you guys so much for listening to that. Um, I, I, yeah, if, you, if there's anything you want to reach out to me, by all means, I'm at WH Mullally on Twitter, Instagram, The Cutaway on YouTube. Um, feel free to, to give your thoughts and I'm you know, open to having a, more of a discussion on the film and your own thoughts and provide a platform if you want to you know, really say something extra if you have any other insights into this film. The music to the, po- to the podcast, as always, is by Pro Letter. Um, we'll be back soon. And thank you so much for listening. And, and have a great day. Thank you.